A big theme in many books and many movies is Judgment Day. You know how it goes. There's a, there's a final last day. They're being attacked by aliens or something like that is going on. And a hero comes in and saves the day. The outcome is predictable. Good triumphs over evil. The earthlings live happily ever after. Of course, that is until the next time some other alien comes and threatens the goodness of the planet. Not so according to Jesus. Jesus says there will be one final judgment day. But to be honest with you, it's, we use that word judgment day, and, and it is correct. But in many ways, it's more like a sentencing day. Those who are already dead will understand where they're going to spend their eternity because they've already started spending it there. And, and, and for, for the living, it's important to see that Jesus is judging now, if you will. He's, he's gathering the evidence. He's building the case uh, for the verdict. And uh, instead of it being predictable that day, Jesus is going to teach us uh, this week and next week, particularly, that it will be full of surprises as the evidence will prove who are the true followers and who are not the true followers of Jesus. And so the title of our message today is Getting Judgment Day Right, Part 1. Now you say, why Part 1? Well, that's because there's a lot of stuff in this passage that conflicts with our secular culture and what I would call contemporary Christian culture. Um, Who do we believe? Do we believe the culture? Do we believe the Christian culture that might be off? Or do we believe Jesus? Now you go, Pastor Jim, that's a dumb question. Jesus, of course. Well, I agree with your answer, but I'm not so sure as many people agree with Jesus as necessarily think they do or not yet anyway. We're at the end of Jesus teaching his disciples regarding their question that began at the beginning of chapter 24 regarding the end times and and when Jesus was going to establish his kingdom on earth. And most of chapter 24 surrounded the events of of that future time period. But as we near the end of chapter 24, Jesus took a turn. And Jesus started talking about watching and waiting, and being prepared for his second coming, for his return to earth as ruler and judge. Two weeks ago, if you were with us, we uh, went through the parable of the virgins or the parable of the bridesmaids, and Jesus told us that readiness is not transferable. How many of you don't want to go to work tomorrow? How many of you don't want to go to work tomorrow? Some of you, raising your hand, some of you like definitive, I do not want to go. Uh, I'd love to go for you, because I'd just love to meet your coworkers and find out what they think of you. But (laughs) I'd love to go for you, but the problem is that I can't go for you, because I don't know where to go, I don't know where to sit, I don't know what to do. Some of your coworkers say, well, neither do you, I understand that. But but your work experience is not transferable uh, to me. Last week, we talked about the parable of the talents. A talent was a measure of weight of, of money, uh, but also we said it's anything that God would give us. And Jesus taught us about being actively ready for the second coming, that it's important to be vigilant, to be involved in active service for the king and the kingdom, and that is required. Chapter 24, going backwards again, we talked a lot about date setters, date setters. Now, 
I'm not 100% sure, but I'm 99.99999, I don't want to keep going, percent sure, um, that Jesus is not going to ask you if you got the date right. He's not going to ask you if you got the date right. Based on these two chapters, and particularly this chapter, he's going to say, what have you been doing? Now, you're like, Jesus doesn't, is he going to talk like that? He's not from, he's not from Brooklyn. What have you been doing? Right? He's not going to do that. But he's going to be asking you and me, what have you been doing while you have been waiting? Now, this is a, is a very, at least to me, very interesting because a large part of the church mainly stresses faith. It doesn't matter what you're doing. As long as you have faith, and another part of the church goes to the other extreme, and all they talk about is deeds. Forget about faith. It matters just your deeds. And it's interesting here, at the end of chapter 25, and this is the end of Jesus talking about his return, it looks like Jesus is talking about deeds. But notice I said, it looks like. Deeds are important. We'll talk about it this week and much more next week. But that's not all it is. See, the scripture teaches that the, the deeds are the fruit of the root. And the root is faith in Jesus, love for King Jesus, the power of Jesus himself. And that uh, work of Jesus in our lives and, you know, the, and our faith and our deeds work together and go hand in hand. I want to read to you Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. I'm going to read it twice. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Galatia, one of his earliest letters, one of the first one or two. He says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Now let's go a little slower. He says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. We might say religious rituals. None of that stuff really means anything. It doesn't avail anything. In other words, it doesn't count for anything or have any value, but something different is what has value. Faith working or faith expressing itself through love. And, and, and in the last three sections, we spoke of uh, judgment with an emphasis on being prepared with demonstrations of love towards God. Now we're going to move to demonstrations of love towards others. That will again be more next week uh, as evidence that you are a follower of Jesus or not. So verse 31, Jesus takes us to his return. He says, when, not if, when... The Son of Man comes in his glory. Son of Man, Jesus' favorite name for himself from the prophet Daniel. So he's talking about his second coming. He's talking about his return. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. In other words, the Son of Man will sit on the throne. The Son of Man, Jesus talking about himself, will sit as king. Now, there are several important concepts here. Every phrase makes a point. He is a son. Jesus Christ, the son of God. He is the son of man. He's he's the son of God, yet he is also a man. He will come in his glory. Now, that's an interesting word, that word glory. A lot of times we just think of it as a light but more so, it literally means 
the word wait, W-E-I-G-H-T. He will come in his weight. The earth will feel the weight of the coming of God. There'll be, if you will, a, a pressure exerted on the earth. And the thought, this thought has been with us throughout chapters 24 and 25, that the humble carpenter from Nazareth will return in glory. If you will, the heavyweight champion of the world will come. None will challenge him. This will be the ultimate and final judgment day. No more obscurity for Jesus. No more ridicule towards Jesus. The conquering king will publicly appear in his glory to our planet, and we will feel his weight. We'll actually feel it. Not just see it, we will feel it. Notice Jesus says it will be his glory. Once again, people say, oh, Jesus never said he was God, but he's telling us right here that he is God. God shares his glory with no man, the scripture tells us. And so he is God, and he will return with awesome power in awesome glory with all of his holy angels. Then Jesus says, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. He will sit on the throne, will be comprised of his glory, the glorious throne reflecting the splendor of the glorious king. Now, in the ancient world, we, we different now. Now we think, uh, you know, the, the role of the king and the queen is just to pose for pictures all the time. And, uh, you know, people be interested in this royal family stuff. That was not the role of the king in the ancient world. The, the primary role of the ancient, uh, in the ancient world was to rule and to make judgments. And that's what King Jesus will return to do. He will return to rule and he will judge the whole world. And interesting, when the king judges the world, he will make judgments regarding every person. And as we're going to see in the next verse, there's going to be something that American culture really pushes against, and that is there is going to be a separation. That God is going to divide, Jesus is going to divide people into two separate categories. Not three, not four, not ten, not twenty. Just two. Verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them. And some versions say he will separate the people one from another. How is he going to do it? As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand. Now, in, this, in the ancient world, the right hand, right side, was the place of honor. That's why we shake with right hands. Did you know that? That's why we shake with the right hand, because it's considered to be an honor. Remember that next time you shake somebody's hand. And do, please, do a firm handshake, please. Just a, a public service announcement for that. You know, <laughs> don't, don't crush their hand, but do a firm one. Okay? So he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And so here we see that each person who has ever lived, how God's going to pull this off, I don't know, but he's got eternity, I guess, to do these things. And so he's going to have each person standing before the king, an assessment will be made of their life before their final sentencing. And the sentencing here is pictured as a separation. The sheep, you're going to go to the right. 
Love you people. The goats? <laughs> Maybe that's why there's less people sitting on this side today. <laughs> the goats? Some of you are like, is that really true? Uh, the goats are going to be sitting to the left. Now, you say, what, what in the world is this? That? In shepherding life, it was quite common for the sheep and the goats to graze together. No, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have enough help to do that, and, and they, so they would put them out in the field together. And when you looked at them from a distance, it wasn't always that easy to tell the difference. But at the end of the day, they would go, draw them closer, and when they were examined, they would separate them. Why? Because the goats needed more warmth than the sheep did. The sheep had that natural clothing, right? And the, the goats were far more rebellious, now, I know if I was a typical pastor, I would tell you, well, sheep are dumb and dirty, just like you people are. Um, but I'm not going to do that, because you know that. No, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. So the, the, the sheep are still better than the goats, and the sheep are more valuable because of the, the clothing that, that can come off of them. And the sheep also were able to hear the voice of the shepherd. And while not totally obedient uh, sheep were much more obedient than the goats were, for sure, and they were able to hear and respond to the voice of the shepherd. Uh, John ten twenty five through 30, and it's Jesus in the midst of the good shepherd passage, and it says this, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe... Because you are not my sheep. And as I, as I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Let's just stop there for one second. If you are someone who's put their trust in Jesus Christ, you are one of his sheep. Okay, that, and he says, you will never perish. You're not going to go to hell. Neither shall anyone snatch you out of his hand. Did you hear that guilt-ridden follower of Jesus? Did you hear that? I'm not so convinced. We'll try again in a minute. He says, my father who has given them to me, so you're a gift to Jesus. Some of you are like, I know, I'm the booby prize, right? <laughs> My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Did you hear that? Guilt-ridden sheep. Guilt-ridden follower of Jesus. Guilt-ridden Christian. Did you hear that? No one is going to be able to snatch you out of Jesus' hand. No one is going to be able to snatch you out of my Father's hand. Oh, but I did a bad thing this week, Pastor Jim. No one is going to be able to snatch you out of his hand. Verse 30, I and my Father are one. Now, uh, last week was one of those rare weeks when I left the church Sad. It doesn't happen to me too often. A couple times a year, that's it. And um, and then I told the Wednesday night crew that I, you know, that I felt like I was in a wrestling match, 
And then when I went home, my wife told me I looked terrible. <laughs> I said, I love you too, babe. And, so, and here's the reason that I kind of went home sad. Because to me personally, I found last week's message to be very encouraging. I don't see myself as a five-talent believer, but I'm perfectly fine being a two-talent believer. And, and yet... So many people, when we saw the one-talent believer who didn't make it into heaven, so many of you came up to me going, oh, that was such a hard message. Why? If you've put your trust in Jesus and you're out there taking a swing for the kingdom of heaven, sorry for the baseball illustration, why, why do you think Jesus thinks so poorly of you? Why? I mean, listen, if you're a one-talent person and you know it, you should feel bad and you should do everything you can do to change that. And a couple of you said that to me. And I'm like, listen, let's work on that. Let, let's change that. But, but, but why don't you think that Jesus thinks well of you? You know, it's interesting. Remember the third guy, his excuse was this. I know you are a hard man. Let me ask you this, friend. Christian, Christian, follower of Jesus, do you think God is a hard man? Some of you and some of your reactions led my soul to believe that you think that you do. And that's why I went home so sad. And the interesting thing is, I know so many people who profess to be Christians who wouldn't know Jesus if he walked in the front door, could care less about obeying Jesus. But Jesus loves me, man. I'm going to heaven. Jesus thinks I'm awesome, right? I don't know what's up with that. So it's you people that are the reason that this is a two-part message today. So my prayer is that passages like the end of Matthew 25 this week and next week catch you so off guard that the error that has crept into your heart, you see, and it is cast out. Here all humanity stands before Jesus, and those who have already died, they know their eternal destiny. There is no changing their destiny. They already know. It's just time for final sentencing. And and so, um, you know, here our destiny has already been finalized by the time we get to this point. Now, uh, some of you have gone to court, and and you've had your case postponed and postponed and postponed, and it's very frustrating, Right? Not if you're guilty. If you're guilty, you're glad it's postponed. <laughs> but, but if you're entitled to a settlement or something like that, you, it's, it's very, very frustrating. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're very glad that you are here today. Please understand that the postponement of the sentencing has purely been God's grace to you. Purely God's grace. It's given you time to come to Jesus, to say to him, I'm guilty and I need to cast myself upon the mercy of the court. But here we have this public, universal, and cosmic demonstration of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, as well as the authority and the justice and the power of Jesus for all to see. And as we, Jesus has been telling us all along, remember how many times he's told us? Five times. It will be sudden and unexpected. No one knows the day or the hour. I don't care how many books you've bought of people who know the day and the hour. No one knows the day and the hour 
That's why we must be ready. And as we'll see next week, uh, none of those, uh, those, those chosen, excuse me, those chosen by Jesus for eternal life in the kingdom of God, none of their sins are even mentioned. They're gone. Why? Because they were covered by Jesus Christ on the cross. Your sins, follower of Jesus, were placed upon Jesus on the cross. You said that was 2,000 years ago. God operates out of time. Your sins were taken away from the account, if you are, your account, if you were, are one of his sheep. This is the wondrous thing of the gospel. This is the wondrous thing of the gospel. We'll talk about this more next week. That God does not count the sins of his followers against him. Against them. He counts them at Jesus, yet he counts our good deeds for him. Oh, sorry. He doesn't think well of you. He doesn't like you. You see how backwards sometimes we get it? We, we take his conviction of sin and we, we put it all on ourselves and we don't hear the invitation to intimacy from God. We don't hear the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to change that sin that seems to be repetitive in our lives. Now, contemporary culture believes all will be included on the right, except for a few extremely wicked people. They have discarded the judgment of God. They don't like anything that talks about separation, and they've traded it in for this, different paths leading to the same place. (laughs) I don't care how good a driver you are. If you get on Route 80 and you head west, you will not end up at the Atlantic Ocean. (laughs) It's not going to happen. And that's what people have done. Yet Jesus 100% disagrees that different paths lead to the same place. Now, we've said this before. There's many different paths to Jesus, but Jesus is the one path to God. He's the one path to heaven. And he states that there will be a judgment on God's terms. There will be a judgment on heaven's terms. And God's judgment is real. And it will be just. And it will be right. And it will be fair. And here's ultimately the problem that people have with God's judgment. Ultimately, it comes down to this. They don't want to be one of the good shepherd's sheep. And so they want to set everything upon their own terms. Jump down to verse 46. It says, And these, these are the goats on the left, will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life, that would be heaven. Yet even much of contemporary Christian culture seems to believe that, well, you know, decent uh, church-attending people will be on the right, or those who at one point in time in their life, they, they, they said a prayer, Because, well, after all, we all sin. We all sin. You see, what what have they done? They've taken away any accountability to God. And grace is now used, instead of the wonder that it is, as an excuse for sin and rebellion. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 15, writing to a young pastor. He says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness, another version says, training us to say no to ungodliness 
and worldly lusts, we should live soberly. Another version says we should live self-controlled, righteously and godly in the present age. That even means today. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Weeks of this second coming. Are you looking forward to that? Are you anticipating that? Are you making the life changes maybe you need to make to get ready for that? Who gave himself for us. The idea is instead of us. When people say Jesus died on the cross for our sins, really means Jesus died on the cross instead of us for our sins. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself, his, his own special people, zealous for good works. Does that sound like people going, well, you know, we all sin. doesn't really matter. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. People debate, what does that mean? Let no one despise you. I think it means this. Let no one come at you so hard that you change your mind. And that's going on in the church right now in droves. Where, where, where those who once followed Jesus are now on the internet publicly denouncing their faith. Our generation, including much of the church, has it wrong and backwards. Some people say it, it's, it's good works only. That's all that matters. You need to be a good person. Now, when anybody says that to you, I know you're nice people. You're not obnoxious like me. And I'll say, oh, you're a good person. So what do you do that's so good? They go, well, I've never killed anybody. I go, that's, not what, that's what you didn't do. What do you do that's so good? Right? And they're like, I give money to charity. Give me an example. I gave $25 to the police. Okay, that's great. You live in a $700,000 house, and you gave them $25. God is overwhelmed with your generosity, brother. (laughs) Some people think that it's just good works first. That's all you need to do. Good works first, then you believe. That's fine. That is not the gospel. Jesus and the apostles taught is what matters is that you have repented and believed that you have turned to God and you have put your trust in Jesus Christ and then your life gives evidence of your faith and trust and the power of the Holy Spirit's work in your life by the way that you live your life. So what are goats like? Goats are self-ruled and unruly. While sheep hear the voice of the shepherd and can be trained to follow the shepherd that they love and they trust. And by the way, that's really a large part of what we do here every week. We We are here being trained to hear the voice and follow the shepherd that we love and we trust. Verse 34, Jesus turns to the righteous. It says, then the king. So Jesus is calling himself the king now. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, the sheep, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Would you please do me a favor, if you have your own Bible, would you please circle verse 34 in your Bible? If 
If you don't, start bringing your own Bible every week. I remember when Pam and I first went to Calvary Chapel, we said, man, it's wonderful to go to a church where you really need to carry your Bible every week to know what's going on. Absolutely wonderful. If you don't have a Bible, we'll give you one after service. Uh, they're free, right? Feel free to take one. Just don't sell them on the Internet. That would make you a goat. <laughs> Just put your name and your cell phone number in them. We'd love to give you a free Bible after service and anything we can do to try and help you get going. We're going for it. We'll help you go for it. So Jesus Christ, the one who the Scripture tells us was despised and rejected among men, and still is to this day, reminds us all is that he is the king, and at the second coming, everyone will see it. Everyone will see it. Some will bow to his glory in glorious worship. Others will bow in shame. And, and followers of Jesus, Jesus, notice what the king says to you. Come, inherit the kingdom. What does that tell you about your salvation? Well, let's think about what he says. Come, now's the time, not yet. Inherit, inherit. An inheritance is a gift, isn't it? You don't earn an inheritance. Inheritance is a gift usually to family or to children. It's not something that you earned. It's generally, generously given to those that you love. Romans 8.17 says this, And if children, then heirs, children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now it's true, we talked about this last Wednesday, that we do on this earth suffer with Christ, with the afflictions of Christ, not the suffering for salvation we talked about last Wednesday, but the afflictions of Christ are not over. The, the, the evil went after Jesus, then it went after the apostles, then all the early saints of the church, and now he's after us. And so we will suffer but the inheritance is ours. And I have said this many times before, and I will continue to say it because so many people have either knew they haven't heard it or you keep forgetting. One of the single hardest jobs of a pastor is to convince the true people of God how rich they really are. Very hard to convince people of that. And we walk around like we're just, oh, poor, poor me, oh, poor me. You, you, dude, you're rich. You're loaded, man. You're an heir. You're an heir to a kingdom. Now, most of you have filled out forms or wills where you have to name beneficiaries. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are one of Jesus' beneficiaries. Let me ask you a question. Do you name beneficiaries people you hate? Like, can't stand that guy. What a loser. Right? No, we don't do that. From heaven's perspective, and I've got to tell you something, I think that that perspective is one we need to think about every day. From heaven's perspective, 
to be a beneficiary of Jesus Christ, to be an heir to the kingdom, there is no greater blessing than can be imagined. None. None. God's like, I gave you the best. You're walking around like you got nothing. And what does a follower of Jesus inherit? The kingdom. The kingdom. A place in the kingdom of God. With God forever. With Jesus forever. And that is only given to people who know the king. And that happens by trusting in him. The kingdom is given to God's adopted children who by grace through faith, we're not born going to the kingdom. We have to be adopted in. By grace, God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ will now realize at this judgment time the ultimate gift that their heavenly Father has to offer them, the kingdom. And the greatest thing about the kingdom is God himself. There's nothing greater God can give than to give of himself. Notice he says, the kingdom was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Do you realize that if you're a follower of Jesus, that has always been God's plan for you? Now, what do you think it was? He just said, all right, I'll give them the kingdom, and I'll take them to the kingdom, but in between, I'll make sure their life is miserable. Do you think that's what he did? Some of you look like you think that's what he did. No, 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 not at all. Jesus leaves... No doubt for his followers that their glorious destination, their glorious destiny, has been prepared for them before any good works were ever done. That's going to be so critical as we enter into the next section next week. Understand that, that that place was prepared for you before any good works or any sins were ever done. That's why we say... It's all of grace. God's promises will be fulfilled in his children. They have and ultimately will experience the inheritance of the kingdom. Now here's the diagnostic question. What does that do to your heart? Does that bring joy to your heart? Is your your heart swelling hearing this? Are you like, this is just, this is too good to be true. Well, yeah, this is God. This is God. I want to jump to verse 35. We're going to look at it uh, next week when we look at the rest of the chapter. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now, interesting, next week, um, we're going to notice that the, the followers of Jesus are not confused with their destiny. They're not confused with it at all. They're like, well, yeah, we know. You made us a promise, God. We know. What they're confused about... Um, is what Jesus said. Like, where did we see you with all of these things? See, so why were they confused? They were confused because they knew it was all of grace. But some people have taught otherwise. 
Oh, are they false teachers? Probably some. Are some doing it because they want to draw a crowd? Probably some. Are they well-intended? Probably some. I don't know. But I think it varies with each individual person. But sadly, a faith based on a poor understanding of good works causes all kinds of problems. Many people who are trusting in their good works are only going to find out that they were, in fact, goats. In fact, the, the, the whole good works theology explains so many of the dropouts. Trying and trying and trying. Trying and trying and trying. And finally, they're like, what's the point? I believe with all of my heart this way of thinking has sucked in so many people and and explains so much of the doubt and burnout that people go through. Now, we all have doubts at times, but, but a lot of people really don't serve God that much and they burn out. Why? Well, most of the times we burn out from false expectations. We just think, we think things are supposed to be a certain way, and when they don't turn out that way, we're like, well, God, come on, I'm helping you out here, like God needs our help. Like, what's going on with that? As well as this mentality of what I do for God really contributes to spiritual blindness and, for sure, spiritual pride. Why? Because it takes our eyes off of Christ And it takes our eyes off the inheritance. And it puts our eyes on what we are doing. And all of a sudden we start to notice what everybody else is not doing compared to what I'm doing. And we're missing what Christ is doing in the midst of what I am doing. And in times of trouble, if, if your faith is not built on Jesus Christ, if it's built on the sand, Jesus taught us earlier in Matthew about that, your works and my works are the sand. If our faith is based upon what we do, in times of trouble, I have noticed that causes many people to ask, why, God? Instead of what we see the great saints and great people in the Bible the great people of the faith saying to the Lord, they're not saying, why, God? They're saying, how long, God? How long until you deliver your people? How long until you come? It's also true that, that many so-called Christians and pastors, I don't know, uh, don't want to talk about and hear about judgment. They'll say it makes them uncomfortable. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Let me tell you something. Unless God gives you his holiness, you won't want to see the Lord. (laughs) That's all right. He's the last guy I want to see. You want to meet the Lord? No, it's okay. I'm cool, man. I'm cool. Send Moses up to the mountain, man. we We don't want to do that. Yet, Maybe this is me. I'll acknowledge that I have some weird tendencies. I find the discomfort of judgment motivates me to keep pressing on sometimes. And next week, Jesus will commend that. Without God's judgment against sin, the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ actually makes no sense. 
Because there's nothing to be rescued from then. We're not rescued from the wrath of God. And don't think of the wrath of God as God throwing a temper tantrum. Like he's a toddler, you know, like doing one. Ah. No, no, it's God's judgment against sin. You see, if there's no judgment, we take away a holy God, don't we? And, and here's the thing. I know in America, we don't like to think of God's judgment. But some of you come from other countries where Christians are treated absolutely horribly, where the people are, can't wait for God's judgment. They can't wait for him to come in righteousness. The Americans will be like, What's he doing? Those people will be like, here he comes. Here he comes. Many of you remember the story I've told before when I was one time doing a small group discussion. One of our women leaders for youth group didn't come, and I had the junior high girls, middle school girls, and I had about 12 of them, and, and we were going down the line talking about God's judgment what do you think of it in the first 11? They're like, ooh, 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 ooh. And the last girl, her family had fled from Egypt. They were Christians because of the Muslim Brotherhood. And she said, I sure hope he judges of what he's done to my family and what he's done to cousins and what he's done to people that I know. John 3, 35 and 36 says this, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes or trusts in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Another version says the wrath of God remains on him. So rescue from the wrath, Jesus paying for your sins on the cross, is what makes grace amazing. So let me ask you another diagnostic question. Be honest. Be honest. When Jesus said, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. Did you hear the joy in his voice? Did you hear? Is that the way? Or do you read it like this? Uh, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. Or do you picture Jesus going, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. But Jesus, it was hard on earth. In verse 46, Jesus calls this eternal life. Can you see the smile on Jesus' face? Can you sense his excitement? Let me ask you a question. Does it excite you? Does it make it worth giving your life to that? Does it make it worth making certain sacrifices and and obeying God for that? Jesus joyfully gives us all an invitation to a place where there is no sin... 
There is no brokenness. There is no sorrow. There is no more tears. There is no more pain. There is no more suffering. A place filled with wonder and with awe and love and a place full of all joy. Does that grow your affection for Jesus? A place of worship. By the way, did you realize when you come in to sing every morning, every Sunday morning and Wednesday night, whenever we gather in your whole life, but let's just talk about when we gather together to corporately worship, do you realize that we are practicing for heaven? Does, does your singing really show that? You say, I really can't sing. Listen, I know I have a voice only a father could love. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me. It bothers some of the people sitting next to me, but it doesn't bother me at all. So maybe we need to make some changes in the way we sing and the way we worship. Jesus died on the cross so we could trust him and receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life and know him and the way to prepare is to trust Jesus and to love Jesus and to keep trusting Jesus and to keep following Jesus. Next week, we're going to move to our love towards our brothers and sisters, outwardly living out what Jesus has already done in us. And yet here's the interesting thing. We often fail in loving our brothers and sisters. We often fail in loving people. And Jesus even died on the cross for our failure. And Jesus will even give us grace to succeed as we continue to try again. So friend, let me ask you, whether through death or through second coming, are you ready for judgment day? If you're not ready... Perhaps you are a goat. And if you are, you, I pray you change that today by turning to God. Be willing to turn away from your sins and putting your trust in Jesus Christ. And if you will do that or if you have done that, you are a sheep. And if you are one of his sheep, May your heart overflow with joy as you get ready to meet the Good Shepherd face to face. As you get ready to come and see your King, you, blessed of my Father, may you inherit the kingdom. Jesus' word to us is simple. Come. Well, let's stand and pray.